Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. I am MAKO's Policy Associate, Kevin Canale, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, MAKO's Executive Director, Michael Sanderson. Hey, Kevin. Glad to be back. Today, we are going to discuss tax revenues from casinos and how they affect education funding, a new fix-the-fun proposal from legislative leaders will be included in that discussion. Then we'll break down the growing number of state and local governments electing to bring lawsuits against opioid manufacturers, doctors, and others. We'll zero in on the wave of highway user revenue bills introduced this year in the General Assembly, including some chatter on that front, and don't worry, we'll explain. And finally, we will cover some odds and ends from the DLS annual report on local governments. Of course, that's the Department of Legislative Services. They gave a presentation today in the House. We'll get into some of the highlights of that presentation. Michael, let's first talk about gambling revenues. What do you think? Well, it's it's getting the serious part of session is underway. We're starting to see leadership. Um, this is this is sort of what happens a couple weeks into each legislative session. Uh, you want to focus the attention on some major initiatives you want to accomplish during the, during that year. And this week. We saw leaders from both the House and Senate rally around this this idea of fix the fund. It's mm-hmm. a it's a hashtag on social media um, that's all by design to have education advocates want to rally behind this idea of let's solidify funding for education in each year's budget. So some history here: slot machines were first approved by Maryland voters in 2008. That was followed by table games in 2012. And it may be fair to say that many of the voters on the fence about such proposals could have been swayed by claims that all of these revenues would flow directly into education, which sounds good, right? It's a fair trade-off. Sure. So in in, in both cases, these were actually amendments to the Maryland Mm -hmm. Constitution, and that has to go to the voters to be adopted. That means you have a big public process and and arguably a campaign on behalf of of doing them. Uh, That also means that Secretary of State has to put together a quick summary of the constitutional amendment. Uh, for, for for better or for worse, we don't put the full text of the constitutional amendment before the voters. We try and give them a quick summary of what it does. And you, know, you, can, you can look it up at your library or online to see if you want to read the entire thing. So you know, uh, the idea of allowing slot machines you know, with state licensing and, and the, the net proceeds going to a state education trust fund uh, was part of that summary. And I think an awful lot of people um, who may not have been thrilled about gaming right. said, I'm a supporter of education, and if this is what it takes to support education, I'm in for that. Sure, and it, that makes sense. And, you know, really, now we're in 2018, and there's some good news and bad news. The good news is casinos have generated billions of dollars in revenues for the state. They're some of the largest taxpayers in Maryland. Uh, you know, they employ hundreds of Marylanders, and it is true that many of those revenues have helped to bolster education funding. We know that off the top, in some of these neighborhoods where there are casinos and communities, some of the money right away goes to fund local community impact grants because we know they have effects on those local communities. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. They go to small and minority-owned businesses to fund uh, those types of businesses and also to horse racing. Um, Again, that's something that they affect, and those are programs that – you know, should be funded by these casinos, and that was all worked out. What we get down to is the rest of that money. And as you mentioned, that money goes into an education trust fund, and that can get confusing. You talked about this lockbox, right? And a lot of what people are saying is, well, 
you know, that money has come in and it hasn't really added on to what we spend on education, that these revenues have helped to bolster education funding. The problem is they have not increased state funding beyond what's already required by law, right? They have supplanted, not supplemented. to this argument, and, and I don't think it's a, it's a simple matter of every right-thinking person should have the exact same point of view. But fa- fact of the matter is uh, the state was still in the midst of ramping up a big multi-year commitment under the Thornton legislation. That's the, you know, the, the real engine uh, funding program for K-12 schools across the state uh, from the commission back you know, 15, 16 years ago. Uh, we were still in the midst of a very expensive and very aggressive uh, investment in public education at the time that that uh, the state moved to raise a bunch of revenues in the fall of 2007 and put slots on the ballot. So this was part of a package where the state had a real structural budget problem and was facing making decisions like maybe we need to cut back on these school funding commitments without new revenues, and without a commitment of money from gaming activities, I don't think the state would have been able to maintain its commitment to Thornton funding. And I, I, think, that's, I think that's pretty, uh, pretty a, a pretty straightforward assessment of where we were at that time and, and really have been since. Yeah, and that's fair. I mean, without those revenues, we would not be able to fund the formulas like we do today. Right. So, so, so that's the way that gaming revenue has been put into an education trust fund for a list of only education purposes. And, and all the money that's gone into the education trust fund has been used for education purposes. We're not, this isn't a situation like some years ago, uh, Maryland put on the ballot, the transportation trust fund would be lockboxed. So you couldn't have transfers of transportation money out for non-transportation purposes. And that had happened. The, the state had dipped into transportation revenues when it had budget crises in the past. Uh, even though those had largely been repaid, that was part of a commitment the state made when raising transportation revenue several years ago. So this isn't a parallel to that situation. But at the same time, if, if you as a voter or you as a stakeholder in education believed the new, the new funding commitment is going to be Thornton plus slots. Right then you may be disappointed that it turned into slots got us thwart. So the advocates here that are pressing for this lockbox bill will say, well, yeah, you, you've taken the education trust fund, all that money's going to education. But the money that you had that you previously had appropriated to education, you're diverting some of that money back into the general fund. So really, this education trust fund is just replacing some of that money, and it's not all on top. So the the, the the term of art in government speak is, are you supplementing or supplanting? And to some degree, Maryland has been supplanting general funds. They've have withdrawn you know, some of the general funds that otherwise would have been used for education and used the funds from the education trust fund. So that's supplantation. What's proposed in this fix the fund bill? We haven't yet seen the bill, but but I think we understand the framework of what the leaders are talking about here. This is a bill that's going to say this is going to be a supplement. This new money is going to be above and beyond. It, it, it may take some phase in or some period of time to to lock that commitment in, but we know that's the direction they they want to go. Now, this bill would be another constitutional amendment, so this would put the question on the ballot in November. Uh, Again, supporters say this would add $500 million a year to school funding when it is, as you said, fully phased in over a number of years. 
Right. And so that meshes awfully comfortably with a, a widespread expectation that, that Maryland is about to make another education commitment. Uh, we've talked on this pod, you know, over the last several weeks uh, about the Kerwan Commission and, and talking about achievement and excellence and, and, and investment in our public schools in Maryland. Even though it doesn't look like we're going to see the big legislation on that front during this session, there's a full expectation we're going to have a big, weighty, well-considered report that's going to say Maryland needs to do better in a variety of places. Some of that's going to have a price tag and a commitment like this to say this slots money is above and beyond would be a cornerstone you could build on. Yeah, I mean, the timing couldn't be more perfect. And as Michael said, we do expect the Kerwin Commission to finalize their recommendations later this year. And as he said, it's expected that uh, a lot of those recommendations will have quite a hefty price tag, particularly in areas like pre-K and, uh, you know, more funding for career and technical education. So we'll have to see this bill. Like you said, we haven't really seen it. But, um, you know, any closing thoughts on this issue before we move on? I I just... For, for our most loyal listeners who have been with us since the beginning, you and I sat down in November or December and tried to lay out some things we thought were lying ahead. And at one point, we were talking about, you know, we don't know if Kerwan legislation is going to be ready. That commission didn't seem like they had enough time to be done. We almost, you know, I think it'd be fair to say we sort of called that they might have to punt for a year. That's what they've done. But we did talk uh, on, in this in this setting about what could happen this session and a focus on pre-kindergarten, maybe through grants or expanded current programs. That seems to still be in the air. We also talked about this exact idea, the commitment of of gaming revenues to education possibly being on the ballot, and that looks like a pretty likely outcome for this year. Absolutely. does look like a likely outcome, so we'll keep you updated once we see the bill, and uh, we'll get into more of that in future episodes. Next, I want to get into opioids. And really, Michael, it's impossible to talk about the causes of America's opioid epidemic without pointing to the manufacturers and to the distributors that marketed and proliferated dangerous opioid painkillers. Yet, you know, for much of this crisis, these multi-billion dollar opioid companies have avoided much in the way of serious accountability, that is, until perhaps now. Um, you know, since really last year we saw this begin, cities, states, and other jurisdictions have begun to file lawsuits against these companies. And at this point, there's up to hundreds of such lawsuits in play, many more to come. In Maryland, we've had multiple counties file these lawsuits, and we know that more are planning to do so. And, you know, across Maryland, every community has been affected by this epidemic. Um, so what do you see in terms of these lawsuits, and especially in Maryland? Well, I mean, you're, you're right that this is one of those subjects that just hits absolutely everywhere. And uh, you know, one of the things MAKO does each year, we try and get out and, and meet with the elected officials in their home county um, I mean, the, the best circumstance for that is for us to be on the agenda at a county commissioner's meeting on some Tuesday night or Friday morning or whatever, but to, to be there on the agenda in public and and there's no place we go during that process where this topic um, doesn't just immediately spur conversation. Uh, local jurisdictions want to know, you know, we're short on beds. Uh, we need an expansion of our drug court. We're still having trouble with uh, people we're holding pretrial. Uh, it's the, the stories can be different from county to county, but they're all heartbreaking. Uh, we're to the point now where, where nobody's unaffected. You have a friend, a family member, somebody in your community who's 
who's lost a loved one or had a close call, uh, the number of you know the number of circumstances where just you know ordinary citizens have been called into duty to try and administer the life-saving Narcan or something along those lines. And we've been we've been trying to train our elected officials at the Mako conferences, and the lines out the door. I mean, this is it's that kind of issue, and it's 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 unfortunate that it's become that sort of thing. But if you took an oath as a public servant to you know to do your best to serve and defend your citizens, I mean this this is really high on your list, and and, and rightfully so. So I mean I don't think you can blame jurisdictions who we've been doing everything we can to find treatment options. We've been doing everything we can to find vulnerable populations and and get them services if they need them. Uh, you know, get people who are in our jails or in our health clinics, uh, the kind of the kind of things that they need. We're, you know, we're doing all that stuff. But at some point, you've got to try and stop the bleeding. Right. And I mean, we have incurred, you know, substantial expenses relating to first responder intervention, drug and alcohol counseling um, and a loss of economic revenue to counties. So, as you said, at some point, you have to try to stop the bleeding. And it seems like, you know, the idea here is to recoup some of those costs and also to curb this epidemic. And in some ways, I can see this, you know, turning into 1998 with big tobacco, when these sort of lawsuits forced uh, tobacco companies into a master settlement agreement with most of the states. And, you know, that they paid tens of billions of dollars up front, then they made additional payments, but it also put major restrictions on the sale and marketing of tobacco process uh, products. So with this, I think we would all agree that to curb that marketing, and which some would argue they've been misleading people in terms of the effects of these opioids, but that would be a win in itself. And then to try and recoup some of these costs that taxpayer dollars have gone to to pay for is is, is definitely a win. And and tobacco, I think, is is the pretty obvious parallel. And and what we saw as the outcome of the big picture tobacco litigation was not only some share of the financial burden that the products cause, but also a change in the way the game is played. So if it, if it turns into you know, this litigation, you know, maybe creates some equity between taxpayers bearing the cost and the brunt of all these different services and maybe the industries who are behind some of it. I, I mean, I think we may, there may be a judgment that that's a fair thing to do. But if it changes the, the supply and the availability or the way you know, the way physicians are educated and informed about these products and so forth. I mean, those are the kinds of things that might be part of the supply side, uh, a way to address it. Yeah. And, and also, it's important to point out that, you know, most of the, the counties and local governments involved in these suits have said that uh, the money that they get, you know, once they reimburse the taxpayers for these services, they're going to put money into treatment and uh, investing in their communities ways to help people who may be addicted to drugs. And I think that is critically important as well. Right. So, that, I mean, that's what this this effort is principally about. It's one more prong in what has become maybe the highest profile issue that, that, that governments at every level are facing. Absolutely. We're going to take a break. And after the break, we're going to sort through the wave of highway user revenue bills that we've seen introduced to this point in the General Assembly. We'll also highlight some of the odds and ends from DLS's report on local governments, all that and more after the break.
Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Kevin Canale back with Michael Sanderson. And Michael, let's talk about the influx of highway user revenue legislation that we've seen this year. There seems to be a lot of legislatures interested in highway user revenues this year. So, so highway user revenues is sort of Maryland political parlance for the share of state transportation revenues, the, the gas, you, the, the, the tax that you pay when you buy gas and motor fuels, the tax that you pay when you buy a car goes into a separate a special fund within the Transportation Trust Fund, and a share is sent back to local governments uh, to do local roads and bridges. And so traditionally, before the recession, the share was 70% to the state, 30% to the locals. And since the recession, most localities have seen uh, their highway user revenues cut by 90%. Right. So, so this is this is one of those you know tough things that happen during brutally tough budget times. It's the, it's the summer of 2009. The stock market fell apart. The legislature cobbled together a really tough budget in, in the 2009 session. A few months later, the revenue estimates come in terrible. It's time for the the state to. I mean, this is August, right? We're, right? we're we're literally just weeks into a new fiscal year, and the state already has to come make two, three, four hundred million dollars of cuts to that year's budget that just started. So, out of the clear blue sky, the Board of Public Works went and made a ninety percent cut of what was left, which had already itself been cut sure. of highway user revenue, saying under these circumstances we just need the cash. And, you know, maybe some thought that this will be temporary. Right. But the bottom line is we've never seen the highway user revenues for locals that share restored. Yeah, not even close. Not even close. Right. So here we are in twenty eighteen and we're still talking about this. We know that our loyal listeners have heard about this a bunch. If you have been around MAKO over the last several years, you know this is a legislative initiative for MAKO, and it has been for many years. So, Michael, we've heard some chatter around the General Assembly about this issue, and we've seen many different varieties of bills introduced this year dealing with highway user revenues. Well, I think one of the things that really impresses and, and strikes me is the breadth of legislators who have taken up this issue. I mean, it's Mako's job to go out and find sympathetic legislators who might be willing to put in a bill to help restore these funds, right? And so we'll, we, we, you know, we're we're in the midst of doing that. We're right. walking around, we're walking around the that we call backs and titles of what will be bills in the matter of the next few days. So we're, we're in the midst of doing that right now. Uh, our, our sister organization, the Municipal League, is mm-hmm. doing that as well. So. So that's natural, but bills are just popping up every couple of days on the synopsis of bills being introduced that day. We circle something and say, hey, what, what do you know? Here's, you know, here's a, a rural county Republican putting in a bill to restore highway user revenues and give the local governments their share back. And then a couple of days later, you've got a metropolitan Democrat doing the same thing. So, I mean, that's I think it's a really good sign that this is an issue that People hear when they go back home. Mm-hmm. You talk to people in your district. Uh, people are frustrated about potholes. People are frustrated about infrastructure. And uh, we're not alone in this fight. Right. So it seems like we're making headway, I think would be the best way to put that, that this is an issue that is starting to, to get a lot more attention And I agree with you that when these legislators are going home, they're hearing about this. They're hearing about the potholes. They're wondering why uh, the local governments have not been getting the money that they need to maintain their roads. And in Maryland, local governments maintain 65% of the roads. That's important to point out as well. So it's it's a... um 
we have a larger responsibility than the state by far. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the most heavily traveled roads, the big, you know, the big interstates and so forth, are maintained by the state. But you know, for, for five out of six road miles to be maintained by county and municipal governments right. – uh, and for us to be doing that on really a trifling share of those state revenues, I mean, we don't have a local gas tax. The county can't come up with its own transportation revenues. So you're just shoveling money out of your own property tax, taking it away from what could be funding for education or for public safety, because you got to plow the streets. That's right. And so, Michael, what are we hearing about the chatter that there seems to be a, a, a groundswell of legislators saying, well... We have all these bills. Why don't we just make it one bill? Everybody get along. We're going to get you what you want. We'll get you what you want. It'll be a great compromise. And let's have one bill and let's all get behind that. Right. So so we, we've been we've been hearing round after round of this informally. Mm-hmm. And, and again, this is exactly how things are supposed to happen when you're 20 and 30 and 40 days into a 90-day session is bills are being introduced. The first round of discussions are happening. Uh, we had we had the first bill hearings earlier this week, so it's sort of officially on the map. People have put in written testimony and so forth. But I think we've got stakeholders, all those people who put in individual bills. I haven't heard any legislator who says, you know what, it's important to me that it's my bill. I got pride of authorship here. We got people who want a solution. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the county leadership feels the same way. So the idea of if this if we can toboggan all this and we can find a solution that works for the towns and cities something that works for the for Baltimore city and its unique infrastructure challenges mm-hmm. and for the 23 counties large and small if we can find a solution that works for everybody if that means amending it all into one bill or amending it into the burfa bill or wherever's the best place right. um I, I think we end up potentially you could build an offer that they can't refuse. And how great would that be for those of us who have been investing for years trying to get this back on track? Absolutely. And I agree with you. I think, you know, Mako would certainly be behind that one bill concept and everybody getting on the same page and and pushing that bill through. Um, We're also still advocating, of course, for infrastructure funding as a whole as part of our Lift for Maryland initiative. That's, you know, wastewater treatment plants, bridges, roads, 911 call centers. That's all part of infrastructure. But to get all of the highway user revenue bills wound into one, I think certainly helps our cause. Well, I mean, we know that local roads and bridges are being left behind. There's no ambiguity about that. Mm -hmm. We, we think in the name of looking at infrastructure, what's going to be in the lift bill, which we think will be dropped in the next several days, that, that's going to have, let's pull together better information and inventory about where our needs are and what resources are available to tackle them. Right. So, I mean, I think that's a valuable exercise anyway, mm-hmm. but, um, but let's face it, we're on different tracks. So we, you know, we don't need an inventory of local roads to tell you that we are falling way behind. I mean, the, you know, we we heard we heard today in uh, in in a in a briefing in the House of Delegates, uh, you know, Talbot County, their share of highway user revenues is not enough to mill and grade two miles. Yes, and it's, of, it's incredible of, of, of locally maintained roads. So so they're just you know this stuff is dying on the vine. I mean, back. Back in 2009, not to, not to harp on this, but back in 2009, the idea of 
take a deep cut for a couple of years, we can survive because capital stuff, you can kind of postpone and it'll be okay. Yeah, we were being team players. We'll stretch it out, right? Um, But the idea of going on eight, nine, ten years and still no solution in sight, you've got roads that are falling into disrepair. And, you know, as you said, that example from Talbot County today really is uh, insightful and it really shows you how badly these revenues need to be restored for local governments. So it's good to have a lot of people thinking the same way, uh, people from different, you know, really different looking districts. Yes, that's that's yes. encouraging. It, it, it is. Okay, now uh, you'll have to exclude, excuse us while we nerd out for a bit. I won't, you know, we're going to get into some of this DLS reports on local governments. Uh, you know, we won't drag our listeners too far into the weeds today. We'll try, we'll try not. We'll try, although we would love to talk about each and every uh, morsel in that report. Uh, Michael, let's just talk about a few of the interesting tidbits here. Um, so we get this report every year on state aid to local governments. You were in the briefing today. Uh, we heard from DLS. What What stood out to you in terms of something that we should be sharing with our listeners that they'd be interested in hearing about? I think there's a there's a few things, and and I'm I'm following your lead, and I've I've uh, I've done a strike through on three quarters of the things that I wanted to talk about that I think are interesting. We but, can do that later. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, Offline. Uh, but I but all right. So I mean, first of all, this is my gratuitous comment that I make at this circumstance. Just about every time I see reports like this, uh, talking about aid to local governments is great, and. From a staff perspective, that's functional. You want to be able to break up the entire state budget into five or six categories, then you leave a little other, you know, that sort of thing. And that right. way you can kind of describe the moving parts of the budget. But the the term aid to local governments really sounds like those are funds that are coming down to mayors and county commissioners, doesn't it? Right. I mean, that's, it that's does. A, that's what that phrase sounds it, it like. It does. So – The reality is in the universe of aid to local governments, in the budget that's sitting before the legislature right now proposed by the governor of all the state funds, it's about $7.7 billion. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. It's a big commitment on behalf of of, of Maryland residents. Um, And this is called aid to local governments. But out of 7.7, how much of that is going to K through 12 education? The vast majority, about, and it, it's important to put yeah, that in perspective, yeah. right? So, how about six and a half billion? Six point yeah. five out of seven point seven. That's your first piece of the pie. So, that's mm-hmm. most of the pie is K through twelve. Now, again, I mean, the commitment to a thorough and efficient system of public schools. This is enshrined in the Maryland Constitution. Mm-hmm. It's a fundamental state responsibility. The state has to do this. The state should do this. And the state has a very important role to support education. But if you put it under the banner of aid to local governments, it looks like you're just handing bags of money <laughs> to the county commissioners and saying, go have at it. Right. The fact of the matter is this is funding for schools. And if I were a delegate and I were, I were interested in my schools, which they all are, I'd feel like I'm being done a disju- uh, an injustice. Why, why, you're, it's a disservice to say, oh, this is aid to local governments because they're committing funds to education. And that is that should be a high priority. They should be proud of that. They should be, you know, singing from the rooftops that this is education funding. Anyway, but maybe that should be a separate category, <laughs> right. right? Because once we take that out, as you said, right. we have the sliver left. Right. But we still have all these essential services that local government provide. So out right. of that sliver, what what do we see in? Right. I mean, 
yeah, so even even under the heading of education, on top of that six point five, your next four hundred million are community colleges and libraries. So you're almost to seven million, seven billion out of the seven point seven is what we call education. Uh, so that's really the primary commitment, and these also are effectively pass-throughs. Those are grants that come from the state. Right. They get reappropriated in the county budget to the community college or to the library board, but it's not money that the school that the that the county executive could say, you know what, I'd rather root, use that to pave roads or something else. Right. Can't do it. Right. So so the, the the share of all this that actually makes it to local governments per se is less than 10%. It's about $700 million. Out of that 7.7, you know, it's about 10%. About a dime on the dollar actually make it to, makes it to your local governments per se. So this is what's left of highway user revenues, the transportation fund, a lot less than it used to be. Uh, it's things like program open space. This is from the state transfer tax. Right. It's a dedicated revenue source. It's another one that we can't use on other stuff. It's got a particular uh, a particular earmark on it. Uh, it's funding state funding for police aid. Now, that's a classic aid to local governments. That's sure. you have a police force. The state's going to give you some extra support on top of what you can raise with your local taxes to make sure everybody's got adequate policing. Yes. That's fine. That's that's legitimate local aid. Yes, yeah, for the good um, of the community. Right. Right? Yeah, but then – and you know, there's support for local health departments. And then these other things you mentioned, the impact aid for, for jurisdictions that have gaming facilities mm-hmm. – um, this wasn't you know, necessarily those jurisdictions' choice to have a giant facility placed there. There's all sorts of infrastructure and public safety demands that come with it. So the state chips in some of the some of the revenue to offset that. That's not necessarily free money. So what you're saying is we we really need to to make clear that when we're looking at this and when you see the term state aid to local governments, you got to take a bunch off the top and realize what you're talking about because the majority of this money is tied up. And what we have left, we have to sort of pick and choose on on what we're going to do, and that puts us in a rough spot. So, you know, it's tough. Yeah, I mean, if I were a legislator, I think I'd ask I'd ask the staff, could you could you assemble this by function? Yes. Show me education as a category. Show me public safety and public health as a category, rather than you know this umbrella topic that doesn't mean anything. Because it sounds like a lot of money, yeah. but but again, yeah. I think it's important that our listeners know what that means. <laughs> and then the money that makes it to counties and municipalities, we could just be part of that little other at the bottom. That's right. That's <laughs> essentially what we are, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So uh, one of the things that I, I thought was interesting, we talk about disparity grants, right? And these are counties, 10 counties get these disparity grants. And the idea here is that counties whose per capita rate for net taxable income is below 75% of the state average receives these grants. And so the idea is that everybody's getting at least 75% of the state average, right? So in 2009, the General Assembly put a cap on that level and, and froze those grants at 2010 levels. And what I heard from DLS today was that some counties, even now in 2018, lose out big time because of that cap. Well, this is one of these things that happens. So, so your, your, your framing is right. The idea of the disparity grant is we count on county governments to deliver a lot of essential frontline public services. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to be making their own commitment to education. They're primary drivers on public health, public safety. They run the jails. They have to fund all, all those different services. Um, we're counting on the counties to basically do all the transportation road wo- road work because uh, state funds have dried up for that. Right. So, so we know the counties need an adequate amount of revenue. Um, thing is, we count on income taxes here more than in most states. Right. 
and it, it, the amount of taxable income that counties have uh, varies an awful lot. Of course. So you have jurisdictions in the state that are at the maximum rate for their income tax, but the bang for the buck they get is way below everybody else. So if you're, if you're doing all you can, mm-hmm. it's tough to ask the county to go further than that. So the, the concept, the policy idea behind the disparity grant is you're making your contribution will bring you up to at least a level of adequacy, right. and that's at 75% of the state average. So that was in law for a number of years. Uh, the sort of the, the split between the haves and have-nots, as it turns out, has grown over that period of time. That's a demographic shift mm-hmm. across America. This mm-hmm. is not unique to Maryland or unique to Maryland's counties. But what we see now is is the product of a well-designed formula that had growth in it at a time when budget growth was uncomfortable and unaffordable. So we slapped a cap on it and said, okay. And I mean, it's tough to object in the moment to a cap. Sure. Um, so, oh, you know, th- this is a formula that's going to grow. We don't have eight, $8 million extra. So let's just leave it at last year's number. Well, you got by last year. You can probably get by this year. That's a really tempting thing to do as a matter of policy. But now here we are years later and you're seeing like jurisdictions who under under the simple formula would be, you know, if you brought them all the way up to 75 percent, that basic threshold, mm-hmm. um, they'd be awfully better off than they are under this formula with a cap. In Prince George's County, the by number, the largest affected jurisdiction in, in this year's budget, it's like sixteen and a half million dollars difference mm-hmm. between what the state's providing under the cap or what the state would be providing if they followed their own rules. So a huge, huge hit, and it's not just Prince George's, right? Right. I mean, there's 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 10 jurisdictions that receive disparity grants, and at this point, almost all of them are subject to this cap. And the difference between the calculated grant and the, and the cap that's in law, in some cases, is big. Now, I mean, Allegheny County's number in gross is not as big as Prince George's, but Allegheny County has $6.4 million difference between what they're actually getting and what they ought to get under the formula. Now, Allegheny County is small. Right. That money could go a long way. So that's real money, and it's a huge impact for Allegheny County. Right. So, so I mean, you know, the state has a well-intentioned policy. I don't think anybody said, we're setting out to really stick it to these poorest jurisdictions because they're not worthy of the help. Right. It was just a function of, hey, it's a tough budget time. We're doing these sorts of things to round off some of the edges of a tricky budget, and yeah, we'll put a cap here, and we'll we'll you know cut this thing back, and we'll flat fund this and that and so forth. You leave a cap in place for years, and you end up with a really distorted commitment that that really shorts the objectives of public policy. You know, and unfortunately, the the tough budget time, you know, those that era in the in the recession, all of those items start to add up, right? We have the highway users, and we have these disparity grants. All that stuff that had to be done in the tough times, it adds up. And here we are right. in 2018, and you're seeing those numbers continue to rise in terms of what counties are receiving and what they should be receiving. Sure. So, you know, I mean, these these sound like they're value-laden opinions about, well, it should be this or it should be that. I mean, I don't think we're under any illusion that the state is going to suddenly discover 40 or $50 million to relieve this cap this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not sure... I'm not sure if if they sat down at the time that the cap was put in place 
and said, well, if we leave this here forever, here's what things are going to look like. Do we really want to do that? Right. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure this is what anybody intended. Right. I, I doubt that it is, but it's the reality. So what else uh, from today's report do you think you know, we should discuss here and is of interest? So I, I, one more thing that I thought was interesting, um, in talking about school funding, you know, that's, that, that's where the, the, the big money is, mm-hmm. and it's, it's awfully interesting to see that sort of stuff. A lot of discussion about how school funding is distributed, um, the wealth calculations and so forth. We've talked about that a little bit on previous versions of this podcast, of how, the, how the Maryland um, measures wealth for each jurisdiction, and that's sort of an inverse calculation. The wealthier you are per pupil, the less the state contributes towards your cost of education. Um, I saw something interesting in today's presentation that really crystallized something that's tricky, and this is a county with declining school enrollment. So this is, of course, we are talking about, because we both saw the presentation, we're talking about Cecil County. Yeah, Cecil County is an outlier this year. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we just see this happen. You know, I mean, there, are, there are places that genuinely have a, a demographic change and population is going down. Um, most of the state's population is going up slightly year to year. Uh, Cecil's actually is down 1.3%. Uh, in the current year that we're measuring, we're always looking like a year a year in reverse at the at the real numbers, but but Cecil school population is down a little more than one percent. So mm-hmm. that's a pretty big drop yep. year to year. Um, but what's interesting is it's not that their entire economy is imploding or declining. So they had you know, modest growth in their overall economy and along with it their wealth. Right. So as the overall tax base is divided by fewer students, the jurisdiction appears more wealthy under these state wealth formulas, right? Right. So so you end up with two things that conspire against a county like Cecil. So they they number one, they have fewer students. Mm-hmm. So every year the state funds education on dollars per student. This whole mechanism is coming up with how many dollars does it cost to educate a student? times your enrollment equals your grant. Right. So so that's the foundation of how we calculate school funding is dollars per student. And then there's, you know, there's changes and add-ons and variables sure. for for special classes of students and so forth to try and, you know, make it match the needs of your jurisdiction. But that's the foundation is here's the, here's the dollars per student equals your your funding. Right. So then the state says we're going to do wealth equalization based on how much wealth per student you have in your jurisdiction. Okay, so Cecil, modest growth in their economy, surprising drop in number of kids. So now they look like they're a bunch wealthier than they were last year because that fraction, the denominator of that fraction, the number of kids went down. So not only now does the does Cecil receive uh, funding for fewer students, it also receives fewer dollars per student. Right. And that's so, the, the troubling, you know, the compounding effect. Right. So you end up with two things basically multiplied times one another to get their allocation and both things go down. Right. Um, so so one of the weird questions in this year's budget is when, when the governor said and the governor put an extra layer of school funding in this year's budget and basically was saying, I don't think any school, you know, any school district any county schools ought to receive fewer dollars than last year. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to add an extra layer, not let these formulas just do what they do. He had to come up with $3 bucks for Cecil County. It was not a huge jurisdiction. And if you're asking why would that be so, this is it. It's, right. a, two, it's a double effect for a jurisdiction 
that's got a decline in its enrollment, but some modest growth in its tax base. So, of course, you're talking about the Hold Harmless Grants, $15.2 million, uh, just to make sure that no jurisdiction receives less in state aid than it did last year. And again, $3 million for Cecil, that's a big chunk. Right, and and it's and they're not going to they're not going to grow like gangbusters this year. Um, you know, the other the other thing that lies in the background of when you fund per student and you have things like the county maintenance of effort law is per student, you've basically built in an assumption that every single cost in the school system is a variable cost. And with one point three percent fewer kids, well, you can you can probably serve one point three percent fewer lunches, right? But you can't have one point three percent fewer school buses, exactly. Or, right. Yeah, and, and one point three percent fewer gymnasia, right? You know, so and you, that's you can't true. do that. Yeah. So, so the fixed versus the variable cost is another big piece of this, right? So it, it, it lies in the background of the way we fund schools. It, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the idea of funding per student. But these things can conspire against you. Um, this is another topic that when the Kerwan Commission starts to roll up its sleeves and look at financing, I think this is common sense dictates you ought to have some way of looking at this differently so you don't have these cliff effects. Yeah, they'll certainly be looking at the wealth calculations and, and how to deal with these abrupt drops in funding. Right. Um, and so I think that's going to be a big piece of what they do uh, in their final recommendations. So that's that's probably enough for now to talk about you know local aid reports and that sort of thing. But the Department of Legislative Services website has a whole series of reports. Uh, the one that came out today is, is a look at local aid in the FY19 budget. It's 65 pages, and it's awesome. It's really awesome. <laughs> and also, it's a brand-new website design, which is awesome. Um, shout out to DLS for that. So that'll do it for this week's episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. We will be back next week with a new episode. Until then, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, which is available wherever you choose to get your podcast. And if you like what you hear, tell your friends. It helps us get our message out to more folks. Until next week, Kevin and Michael signing off. We will talk to you soon.